Welcome to the Community Feedback Loop, a weekly podcast about sharing conversations between people in gaming and esports focused on community, public relations, and how we communicate in the video game industry. I'm Bob Holtzman, the host for the show. I've worked in games since 2007 and founded Co-op Mode Communications, a consultancy that offers public relations for games as a service and the communities who support them. Follow Co-op Mode Communications on LinkedIn. You can connect with me via the links in the episode's description. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Drop a follow on Spotify. Please support the show if you like what we're doing. And on that, let's throw it to our interview. This is going to be a really fun conversation. Um, our guest today, we worked together uh, earlier in my career, and uh, I had a ton of respect for her when she was working on um, a very famous Korean MMO called Maple Story. Um, she's kind of done everything in the industry. She's been a game director, a game designer, producer, project manager, and she got her start in QA, which I always think drives some really interesting conversations and, and kind of approaches about the industry. Uh, so she's not only whip smart, she's well-rounded. She understands what it takes to make a game succeed. And today um, she's serving as the director of live operations at Xbox Game Studio Publishing, as well as as an evangelist for Microsoft's very powerful platform, Azure PlayFab. Uh, if you don't know PlayFab, that allows game developers to manage engagement and retention, content management, run experiments, in-game economies, and automations to move nimbly based on player feedback. So uh, after all that, um, hyping PlayFab, hyping Xbox, uh, please welcome to the Community Feedback Loop, Kristen Cox. Hi, it's so good to see you, Bob. Yes, it's good to see you too. I was trying to think we probably ran into each other at a show, uh, but... You know, we worked together at Nexon, and for me, that was kind of the start of my career. I know you had done some stuff before that, um, but I find it really interesting that um, when you were at Nexon, you kind of got live ops before a lot of us really understood what that meant. And I've always felt like you've just always been like kind of ahead of the pack in that aspect. Uh, you know, when did you really start to kind of see this live operations as being or live ops as we all like kind of shorten it you know when did you realize hey this is really important and something i want to um kind of gravitate to i think it really was it started very early but i it really solidified for me at nexon i think getting to go work um so closely with a korean company that had been working in that space at that point, really for a while, right? Like the, it was relatively new in the West, but it had been going on for quite a while in Korea and a little bit in China. So getting to work with Nexon really helped solidify for me that this wasn't just a genre. Like I think before I was like, I know I want to work on MMOs. I've been working on MMOs. I love the idea of virtual worlds. I really want to be in that space that's so player-centric, it's so vibrant and dynamic. But being at Nexon, I think, really solidified it to me as a process and, and like approach to not just like, oh, we have all these features we want to do in a game that make it sort of an MMO or they make it a virtual world. But there was all this other layer to it where there was also there was a business and there was a production methodology, there was community methodology, all of these things were also a part of taking care of that community over a long period of time. And that really solidified for me like, oh, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be in a live space. 
I want to be working on um, taking care of a community and growing a community. And I also, I, I think I knew at the time, or I, maybe I just wanted to believe this at the time. And, and now it's like really easy when you look back and it's like, oh yeah, um, I'm, you know, I really figured it out, but it's all chance to some extent. But at the time I wanted to believe that the that Western gaming was going to embrace this, that, that we were on a trajectory that was like, we will keep going down this road. There's going to be more and more of this. People want to be connected to each other. They want their game experiences to last a lot longer than, you know, 20 hours or 40 hours. They really want to develop these longstanding communities around them. And so this is a skill, this is a way of making games that is going to become more and more important. So it's funny you say that because... For me, when I was at Nexon, I kind of thought, oh, the secret sauce was free to play. And I didn't learn until later, no, it's that's not it. It's this live operations. And it wasn't really until Kerbal Space Program, which was mm-hmm. a totally premium game, single player, mm-hmm. um, early, you know, one of the original early access games on Steam. And I saw how they updated the game. And that uh, it was essentially like their version of live operations. They they would make hot fixes and stuff like that, but it was this perpetual calendar, right? Of um, we're going to do this for the community. We're going to do this to improve the game, you know? And then you think about for MMOs, it's like having events, major raids, major, major, whatever. One of the things on that note was that because I was so fixated on free to play, I just thought like, oh, wow, you know, the Koreans have this huge advantage. You talk about the Chinese, you know, the Asian gaming market was really where that started. Um, but now, like you said, you know, you work for Microsoft, obviously live ops is really important for them. They, they work on Minecraft, which is one of the biggest games in the world in terms of, you know, a live experience. Um, like, do you feel like now this is just like kind of globally represented and, and that everybody gets it? Or is there still a lot of like, um, challenge for you when you walk into a, a conversation with game developers and like, we don't, we don't know why we need live operations? I think the big shift in the last five or six years is I don't walk into rooms with game developers and have them say, we don't know why we need live operations, but I still walk into a lot of rooms and they say, we have no idea how to do this. Um, like we, we get it. Like it's hard to ignore. I mean, most people in the games industry are playing games and enjoying games. Um, they're seeing what the trends are. They're seeing, yeah, this is what it takes to to compete at the high levels. But there's still a lot of things that I think are hard, um, not well understood um, about live ops and the way it functions. Um, some of that, I think, in the West has been exasperated a little bit because the way that live ops um, made it into the West wasn't very even. There was this big burst of a, a type of uh, some parts of live ops came in with the social gaming boom, but not all of them. Some parts came in with mobile, but again, not all of them. And I think it's very challenging for AAA developers, especially when they're, they're trying to decode, like, what am I supposed to be doing with live ops? How am I supposed to engage with live ops to look around and go, well, if I go and look out into the industry and I hear a lot of voices around live ops, I hear a lot of mobile voices, I hear some social gaming voices. And when they're talking, I don't necessarily hear these analogs to my my challenges or like my problems. And so I don't know how to take that and turn it into something that makes sense. 
And I think that's one of the reasons I know I've seen so many people that were in our sphere when we were at Nexon that were sort of in the MMO space or the virtual world space as the free to play space have pivoted to spending a lot more time in AAA. And I think it's because we have a little bit more relevant experience coming from larger audiences, more complex games with longer tails. Um, then, although I've met tons of people who started in mobile and made them move to AAA who bring in incredible things to the table. Um, because there's a lot of insights from mobile that are super important. But I do think there's maybe a little bit more of a comfortable transition coming from like MMOs or large scale PC connected titles and going into AAA. Well, I know for me, um, I've worked on a variety of MOBAs, you know, and then some of the, yeah. like some FPS shooters, like, you know, in the pre, pre-conversation part of the, the podcast, we talked about Combat Arms, which was kind of one of the first free-to-play like combat shooters. And, you know, Nexon published it in the West and um, worked on that. And it's, it feels to me like you're you're touching on something, you know, that, I find really interesting on the live operations thing because I've consulted teams and helped them kind of tie some of their live operations together so there's a better workflow. Like like Mm -hmm. that was a project I did at the end of last year Um, and ultimately like brought in a developer to help them like tie some of their systems so that they were talking to each other, you know, some of their internal systems. It feels like, you know, monetization, they really get it. Like, you know, the live ops and monetization is like peanut butter and jelly. Like they're just like, oh wait, you mean I can like, look at my data and see what people are spending and then flip a switch and get them to spend more, like sign me up. Uh, But community management is a little bit different because I think, you know, one of the high values I see for live ops, and I'd love to, you know, hear your thoughts on this is that there's so much optimization opportunity, but community management, you know, and I'm probably like the worst at this is um, it's very like, handwritten, you know, like, hey, I've got to go read the forums and I got to go look at this. And I've seen people try to do natural language processing and, you know, different stuff to like, kind of like, can we get a number to what the community thinks? And it's always kind of fell flat to me. I think there's a couple interesting companies out there and I've worked on some of their platforms where I go, this is kind of helpful for maybe like a 30,000 foot view. But, you know, what do you see? Like, you know, where, where do you, how do you grade community management? Like, in terms of its current active participation in live ops today. I'm going to come around this in a little bit of a winding road, but I, but, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be worth it. Um, so when people ask me like just randomly, they're like, how do I improve my monetization? Like, what can I do to improve my monetization? My answer, if I don't know a ton about your game, my answer is almost always like, okay, this is going to be a really disappointing answer. But the truth is, what you should do is go look at your UX for your purchase funnel and just optimize that. That'll be your biggest bang for the buck. I promise you're losing a ton of money because it's just hard to spend money. Um, Everyone's so bad at this. I guarantee this is your biggest problem. Um, There's a lot of like more interesting things and design centric things about like your core loop and like motivation theory that we could talk about, but it's not worth it for you right now. Just go fix your purchasing funnel. I feel like live ops has been in that state for years now where people are like, what do I do to make my game better? And the answer is like, well, listen, there's lots of really deep things that are mostly centered around community. I could tell you to do 
but it's not worth it for you to do that right now because you've got all of these really like low hanging fruit problems. Go get on a regular release cadence. Go get your data pipeline sorted. Go f- figure out how to do personalization. Go do that first because it's really low hanging fruit and it's going to get you a huge bang for your buck. But I think we're emerging into a place, and I talk about this a little bit in my GDC talk last year, where I'm sort of saying there are these maturity levels for live ops, and the last one is really about really focused on community engagement. This is the place where people who are really just hitting it out of the park, this is their differentiator. Like, why is, you know, why are games lasting for like, you know, 10, 15 years and they're staying on the top of the charts? Like, they're staying on the, they're making more money than anybody else. They have more players than anybody else. All of those people are masters of community. Like, that's the differentiator because, and at some point, I mean, I do think we'll see this happening. People get more sophisticated. We will more globally figure out how to not, how to take care of the low hanging fruit. Even stuff like PlayFab, like like a shameless plug for that is like, oh, that'll get you like five steps ahead immediately. Like you don't even have to go solve a bunch of these backend problems. You just take it out of the box and it works. Um, as that happens, I think people are going to have to focus a lot more on community. And it's scary. Like it's definitely hard and, and and I think kind of scary for a lot of developers to realize like, yeah, what really matters to differentiate your game is, you know, your community and the health of your community, your relationship with them, the way you're cultivating that um, and the way people feel about your game, the way that they attach it into their lives and make it a part of their lives. That's the big differentiator. The truth is, I said, I still, a lot of people are optimizing their purchasing funnel, like, and they should. It's, it's low hanging fruit and you should go do it. Um, but I think that a lot of those teams will kind of run up against that wall at some point where they're like, we got to go f- really figure out how to engage a community, grow a community, tend and manage a community, um, in order to actually survive. And I think it'll get more competitive over the next like five or six years. I mean, I feel like it has to. There, that's such a fascinating point because you know you. Uh, we're happy with plugs here, right? Like ultimately, this yeah. is for the industry, <laughs> and so you know, I had a client that worked on PlayFab, and it was really interesting because I would hear the CTO talk about what he loved and what he didn't love, and yeah. he he always talked very highly of PlayFab. Um, and I know, like, for my work uh, as a consultant, you know, and so shameless plug for co-op mode, you know, we're PR for games as a service and the communities who support them. And it's like, it's really fascinating because I feel like there's, on the communication side, there's still this like dichotomy there, right? Like that people, you know, like, why do I have to say all that? I mean, part of it's like, oh, it's probably good for SEO for me to have PR and community. Um, But there's, and games as a service, right? It's like, ooh, SEO bonanza. But the, the reality is that people don't understand that they're kind of the same thing now, you know, and that, uh, a, a media release is just like a slightly off-target message to your, you know, to your aspirational community, right? And then your community messaging is like, "Hey, we got to nail this. This has got to like really be a clean message." Um, but I feel like there's still this disconnect between that work and live operations, and maybe that's because I'm a consultant and I'm not like, you know in the weeds with it. But I can say even when I worked at Riot, when I saw the best stuff get done, it was because there was a marketing person or a community person who was really getting like 
in deep with a live ops team, right? And it, you know, Riot didn't call them live ops teams, but there were several teams. It could have been player support. It could have been you know another team that was running a lot of automated tools. How much more automation are we going to see on the community end? And do you think that's going to be like a leaps and bounds thing where like whoever gets there first is going to get way ahead? I, it's, it's a tough question because there's a part of me that feels... So we've been kind of stuck, I think, on automation and community for a long time. There's been a ton of like energy that's been put towards it. And there's been a lot of... um you know, products have come out and not really solve the problems. Um, and for me, and this is, I, I think automation, I think automation will come to all aspects of everything, honestly, eventually, like, it's just a matter of time. Like, you know, I talk about this sometimes with game designers and we talk a lot about like, what, you know, what can we imagine for the future of like automated assisted game design? Like that's coming and, and like, what does it look like and how do we learn those tools? Everyone is in that boat. Um, and so automation is eventually going to get there, but we're, we're in a place right now where I think a lot of teams would be better served to rethink their philosophy about um, community and stop thinking of it as problems to be solved. Um, and really think about it as something that they're engaging with in a back and forth with their, with their community and that they're tending that community. Raf Koster says that a lot. Like he's very big into like, it's not management. You're not managing them. They're not your subordinates. Um, you, you, you tend your community like a garden. I think a lot of people would really be helped if, if they, like a lot of teams just to have that switch in perception. And maybe even look at the tools they have available to them now a little differently um, in asking, how am I shaping this community, setting good norms, you know, doing all the things you want to do so that you have a healthy community? And then what is this conversation we're engaging with in? Like, how are we helping them, growing, growing them, working with them? I, I heavily agree with you. I mean, I, to me, one of the highest forms of live ops is when you have um, marketing and community embedded into your team. It's it, it, there should almost be like no separation at all between um, between those disciplines because everything you do in the game, including every piece of content you put into the game, every interaction the players have with it is marketing. Because the way that people engage with live ops games is communal. Um, a lot of it's performative. There's a ton of streaming. Everything is that's yet your bread and butter. And I think that um, this is going to be a big differentiator. I think for for teams that can really cultivate that kind of attitude and can really optimize around um, thinking about everything they're doing as a part of that conversation with their community and thinking about building shared history with that community. Think about, you know, how that community is uh, self-replicating, like what's your organic growth looking like is going to be a big difference here. I really think it's coming for mobile. Like this has been one of my big predictions is like that is coming for mobile. Mobile has lived in this very isolated world where you can be the number one game and be completely just about the relationship between the person and and the app and it's super individualized i i don't know how much longer that's going to last i think you know we see things like pubg 
and Fortnite. Call of Duty Mobile. Call of Duty Mobile. They're they're coming for that space and they're coming with something that is more engaging. It's more interesting. It's a thing to not only play, but go post about on Reddit, go talk about in your Discord. And that I think is it's so compelling. It's going to be tough, I think, for people in mobile who can't get their heads wrapped around their audience. I mean, you could, I mean, you could make the argument like Clash of Clans is it like, yeah, it's already here. Like they already did it. Um, it's been a little surprising to me how few other mobile games have really gone that heavy focus on like multiplayer and sort of guilds and community base. So one of the things when you were talking about, um, you know, Raph Coster's, you know, you're tending the garden um, analogy uh, for community is, yeah, I always think about it kind of in three ways, right? Like there's um, kind of the old tried and true community management, and it's always kind of a snicker, like no one manages a community, um, right? <laughs> like just, you know, it's, it's more of a loose shepherding at best. Um, then there's community engagement, which I love that you talked about, right? This idea that you are kind of extracting um, their best bits as, a, you know, like, a, we, we, you know, some of the people I've worked with in social media talk about this, right? Like our job is to really identify the best bits of the community and, and show them that we understand you, right? So when you create a meme as a social media manager, it is a love letter to your community saying, I get you, I hear you, I feel you. Here's my representation of that. And then the community gobbles it up, loves it, or they call you out for being inauthentic and you're like, um, you know, miserable for a day or so. I, I, social media managers are such like the modern day news reporter, you know, and I used to be a news reporter because, you know, if you had like a typo or a bad story in the paper, you were kind of just like, kind of like, you know, you're like, head, shoulders are slumped and you're just kind of bummed about it because you just knew like, that wasn't a great day. Uh, the good news is, just like social media, you could post another day, right? You live to post yes. another day. Um, and so I think that is, you know, a huge part of the engagement. But what you're talking about is really the in-game stuff, right? And you're really mm -hmm. talking about how do you pull people into that in-game world and market to them? Um, and one of the things I, I kind of thought of as you were talking about some of those specifics was, I think, you know, in this Apple Epic lawsuit, some of the interesting numbers are coming out and Fortnite's sales are actually driven by their shop. Mm -hmm. It's not the battle pass. The battle pass is great and, you know, we all love it, but that's not actually their big revenue driver. It's just people going in and shopping. And I know like, seeing my my child who's really into Fortnite and some of the neighbors' children are really into it, the shop matters. And they would really identify, oh, they're changing this in the shop. They're making it scroll forever or doing other stuff. Do you see this? You know, you have a lot of experience in monetization. And, you know, where are we at with the Western audiences and monetization? Is it like still taboo like it kind of was 15 years ago um or is that kind of becoming a thing of the past it's it's one of those rough things is we're in a transitionary period where it's not taboo with players like players are very sophisticated i mean this has always been true but they're very sophisticated they know what they want they understand value they're shrewd um and they make their preferences known pretty transparently um and, you know, we just look at 
what they do, like the kinds of games that, that they play um, and spend most time in and what they spend money on. I don't think it's taboo at all. It is still taboo with a lot of developers and it's still taboo with a small section of uh, the gaming audience that I think I, I'm pretty sympathetic to them because I actually think where a lot of it comes from is there's um, if, if what you love about gaming is it a really well-crafted, high-quality, single-player narrative experience? I think that um, more continual monetization is threatening. Um, and and it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough place to be because, you know, you can look out at, like, the, like, the games that make the most money. And, and yeah, single-player narrative experiences are nowhere even in, like, the top 50 in the year, right? Like, even the most, like, amazingly successful ones – and I think that's frightening. So I think there is a group of people who are like, ah, it's scary. Like, if this is the way that the business goes, I'm worried there won't be any games I love anymore. Um, and I do think that that's an intri- like a tension, right? Because it's as an industry, I don't think monoculturing our design is a great idea. So like, I, I would also love to see us continue to make like single player narrative stories. Um, I don't want to make any of them. It's not really like what I care about as a designer, but I, I like to play them. And I think they should, you know, they should be out there. So I think there's a little bit of that where there is some taboo there because we're hitting a um, a nerve um, when people start talking about monetization. And um, I think we pretty quickly realized as an industry, like you can't just take like free to play monetization mechanics and shove them into any, like any type of game, like, you, like, you know, single player narrative <laughs> games and things like that. Um, yeah. There are people who've done some interesting experiments there that I think are relatively successful, but they're um, on the peripheral, right? Um, so I don't think it's a big taboo subject anymore. I think that the, the point about battle pass not being like the main driver of revenue for Fortnite, that should not be surprising to you, Bob, because like we had a lot of exposure to VIP systems in Asia. Like I'm pretty aware of like what kind of percentage of revenue they generally make up. It's not, um, I, I, battle pass has been a huge, um, sort of, uh, trend and like revolution in the Western space, but yeah, like VIP systems have sort of existed forever. It's a good um, point in, in China and Korea, and they're really great. But at the end of the day, all monetization is about matching, like what players want to buy, and like wh- you know what kind of motivates them in your game. And, and Fortnite is a social comparison game. Like it's it a game so about is. dressing up yes. and like doing cool stuff and having people see you do cool stuff and you're like personalized look and so yeah like shop fashion is going to be a big deal in that game like that makes a lot of sense to me okay so you're touching on the kind of a question i had but it's gonna we're gonna get to take it from a more interesting perspective i think because you know i was thinking of it oh you worked on guild wars you worked on maple story but i think we can go even broader than that like are there any things that are universal in terms of like hey gamer i want you to buy this thing in my game or do you really have to like kind of, hey, I got to know my audience and I got to know what makes them different than, you know, game, the other game, whether it's a direct competitor or, you know, like I think about Fortnite and League, right? Like, hey, why did I think Battle Pass was so innovative? Well, because we didn't really have one in League of Legends, right? And so I was kind of thinking at the moment um, and I wasn't thinking about, you know, your totally relevant point that these VIP systems have been around for a long time and are, and are relevant, but not, they're not going to drive the way cosmetics do. Yeah. I think, um, 
I think it's like a lot of things. Um, I think it's like like all monetization schemes are like this. I would actually use the metaphor of like, there was a time where the market and technology said the only monetization plan you can have is an upfront cost. Um, that's it. That's the only one. You got to pay before you, we give you at, we sell you the disc with like the physical thing or um, the download or whatever. And that was the only one available. And so we saw a lot of people go, well, it doesn't fit my game really great, but it's the only one I got available to me. So I'm going to do it. And varying degrees of success. I think all monetization schemes are like that. You can plug a battle pass or a VIP system onto anything and it will, what's nice about it as a scheme is it probably like, it's very unlikely to be a disaster. Like it's, it's going to do okay. Um, you will do a lot better um, just generally with monetization. If you do something that's really tailored to your game and your players. Um, and I think we saw this with loot boxes for sure. Like um, there are like last year, G Genshin Impact came out. I really love Genshin Impact. Like, I think it's, a really fun game. I think it, it uses uh, random boxes, gachapone in a way that makes sense uh, for that game and like communicates well to the player, like what it's, what it's up to. And I think if you like that type of game, that game's great. Um, I think that it stands out to me because I think we were in a period where people were like, we can, no one can ever do a loot box again in the West. And it's like, well, you can't, I mean, this is, I don't think anything's changed before we had, controversy after we had controversy you can't shove loot boxes into games where they don't belong you can't sell loot boxes to people who don't want to buy them um it's very difficult in games to sell people things they don't want um because no one needs to play games like it's not a necessity like you're not we're not selling milk right like you, you can't like you can't really you can do a lot of like tricks to get maybe some people to try it and then realize very clearly they don't like it um, that's not a pretty short term strategy though. So I think a lot of it really does come down to, it can be a little dangerous to just go pick up a, a monetization scheme wholesale and move it to another game because it is going to be so less, so much less effective if it's not what your players want. Um, you know, it, it just, it doesn't really work. Um, yeah, it, it like and knowing, knowing your market is super important too, right? Because like stuff that worked in Maple Story, like I knew when I went over to Guild Wars Two was like never going to work there. Like there was just not something that that audience was interested in. I mean, I it's funny hearing you respond to that question. It's like, well, duh, Bob, right? Of course, these <laughs> things aren't universal. I mean, they're kind of universal, but not really. But I think there's a lot of value in you know kind of how you presented it, which is loot boxes work if, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's It's never um, a pure black and white answer for these things. You know, okay, so we, we talked a little about Nexon. We, you know, you just talked a little bit about Guild Wars. Um, I know you've done some other stuff, but you're now on the publishing side. You're working, you know, in live ops. What What kind of attracted you to this leadership role that sounds very like, I mean, you even use the word evangelist in your like LinkedIn profile. Like what kind of motivated you to like take on that sort of opportunity as opposed to like, no, I'm going to just like keep working on a game and, you know, whether it's design or monetization or, you know, as we said at the top, like one of your mini skill sets, you know, what, what kind of led you down this path? It's going to be funny because a lot of it was really centered around monetization, even though that's only like a little part of my job now. Um, 
I I attend a, um, a conference every year called Project Horseshoe, which is a sort of game design think tank. And one year we, we go and hang out in Texas and um, break up into groups and try to write white papers because uh, that's what we do for fun. We write white papers. That's um, awesome. Which is weirdos. Anyway, um, so one year I was in a group and we wrote a white paper about ethical monetization. And I took the white paper, which a bunch of people worked on. You can find it on um, Project Horseshoe's website if you want to. There's a lot of great collaboration from people all over the industry on it. And asked the group if it was okay if I took it and turned it into a talk. Um, and so I went around and gave this talk about ethics, which it turns out is super fun um, to talk about. And everybody wants to hear about it. Um, and I gave it uh, at several conferences. And a lot of that experience kind of made me stop and think, about like what the next several years of my career were going to be like. And I think I I was like, I want to talk to more developers. I just want to have a chance to spend time with a wider group of people. And a lot of what attracted me to um, Xbox was, you know, I I wanted the opportunity to have a platform that I felt like was going to make a difference um, uh, on an industry level. And, And I think it's a big shift. I think a lot of people go through this in the career where like earlier in my career, I was like, it's all about the games and the players. I want to like create things for players and I want to engage with players and I want to be out there with players. And then a a shift did happen where I was like, I really want to be engaged with developers. (laughs) I, I, you know, I, maybe it's, maybe you get more selfish. I was like, my people, I want to do something for game developers. That's what I want my, my work to be focused on. So a lot of it was that. I, I, I talked, I gave this talk. I would talk to a lot of people at conferences about their struggles with figuring out how to do monetization and how to feel good about monetization and, you know, the in- frustrations in the industry. And I, a lot of it was like, man, I, this is kind of what I wish I was doing all the time. I wish I was just working with a wider group of developers and helping make this transition and trying to do at least whatever I can to help developers make this transition into having a more hopefully ethical, equitable relationship with their developers, with their players, with their player communities um, as they go out and like try to make these games that are supposed to be engaging players for years. I mean, yeah, it, that is one of the, the more interesting things is when you talk about monetization ethics. I mean, because I think about the the chase of Gachapon, right? Like, mm-hmm. and is that ethical? I, I look. I love Roblox as a company. I think it's really fascinating. I um, I have a very small amount of their stock when they went IPO. Uh, my kids play Roblox, but I'm pretty adamant about no Robux. And mm-hmm. you know, and it's part of it's because of what you said, where it's, it's kind of the same reason. Like I'm kind of a strict dad. I'm like, Hey, uh, for my preteens, like you can't really watch YouTube mm-hmm. and it's because, and, and so YouTube and Robux are the same thing. And, and I'll get to where I'm going because you're talking about ethics here. I trust that something that Epic Games sells my kids is going to be f- at least reasonably ethical. I trust that, um, Microsoft, will sell me something that's reasonably ethical. I don't have that same trust right now for the user-generated content on Roblox. I don't have that trust right now for um, 
YouTube, right? And YouTube, there's a lot of examples. So I, there's actually a lot of data out there that supports that, hey, you're probably doing the right thing. Um, it's just too hard. And I can't watch every video they want. They want to watch. Mm-hmm. Part of it's because I just don't want to. And then other part of it's like, I just can't, you know, I'm, I'm not the eye, the eye of Sauron. I, I've got to like let them grow and do things. So we're, we're slowly allowing some of that. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is how important is this ethical piece to Xbox and Xbox Studios? And, you know, is this something that, you know, you feel like is a regular part of your job or was it kind of the impetus? And now you're kind of back into how do we make money? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, like I'm one person at Xbox. So it's like, I'm, I can't be like, I speak for all of Xbox. Of I course, don't. of course. That's not what I'm um, asking. Yeah, but um, but it's a big part of my job. It's a huge part of my job. You know, like you nailed it. A, a lot of this is about trust and about trust building. Um, that's a huge, huge, huge part of it. And there's more and more choices out there for everybody all the time. You make a great choice. We can spend an hour talking about the ethics of UGC, like in the the difficult dance you play when you give over create creation control to people who you don't have any kind of ethical contract with they're just sort of out there doing whatever they're doing um that's that's the whole minefield there but it is about trust right like it's about who you can build trust with and i think a lot of times when we talk about ethics and monetization it really is there's a ton of focus like that i could be like you know like there's internally like it's in my head now. It's like Microsoft runs on trust. Like we say that all the time. Um, I like that. But it is, it is a big, it's a big, big focus. Like, I mean, and that's like pulling back and like talking about, and you can go like read, you know, stuff from, from our CEO. Side. Like you can look at that stuff. And I think that he's very prescient, like in realizing when we move into a cloud-based role, when we move into this world where it's not about physical anything, it, it is 100% trust. Like, who do you trust to give over your information to? Who do you trust to buy something from and know that you're going to get something of quality? That's incredibly important. And that that's very, very important to Xbox. Xbox is a brand. You're returning, I mean, 20, I think, this wow. year. Um, it's been around for a while. It's built lots of history. And like, you know, like everything, it's like there's been ups and downs and goods and bads. But it's a long relationship with people, like a really long one. And when you talk about growth, you talk about like, how do we grow so that we have that kind of relationship with more people? It's so much about trust. And what, how that filters down in individual games is, yeah, a big part of the live ops process for us is in preparing a game. We always say like, what is live ops? It's, you know, it's preparing and then operating a game for growth, right? That's the plan. It's like the, the, the goal is, you don't come out and then decline, you grow. And to do that, we you got to build trust. And it's not easy. And I'll say this, and this comes up a little bit when I talk about this um, at conferences and stuff, but it, it's never a big focus because it's a tricky conversation. Trust runs both ways. In order to have a truly ethical relationship with your player race, they also have to uh, treat you ethically. Um, and that's really hard. And the source of, I think, a lot of our problems are as developers when we don't trust that our players are going to treat us ethically. We don't trust they're going to compensate us for our our labor. We don't trust they're going to treat us like human beings, you know, out on the interwebs. Like, we don't trust them. And 
so a lot of what I do with developers is work with them on one, like, what do you want this relationship to be like, right? Like, what would make you feel good? Like, what, like, how would this work in a really optimal way? And then also helping them realize that they totally understandably are worried about their players not treating them ethically, but the power dynamic is not equal. So when we as developers worry about our players not treating us ethically, we sometimes don't realize that we have a hammer we can bring down on them. Um, you know, they're like down here going like, no, nah, I'm going to say mean things about you on the internet, right? And like, not ba- pi- but not buy something. And that's bad. And in the aggregate, yes, it's it's really bad. And like, man, like, you know, internet harassment is a huge problem. And there's lots of problems with dehumanization of game developers. But I don't think we realize that like, on our end, we go like, well, then we're going to destroy something you love. Like, that's like our answer, right? When we feel threatened. So also just highlighting that and making people realize like, hey, it's okay to feel scared. And like, you don't know what's going to happen with your players, but don't turn that into, and therefore I'm going to try to gouge them for money. Like, that's my answer of be feeling backed into a corner. Because one, that's not like, like you can think this through and realize that's not going to turn into this great positive relationship you dreamed of, obviously. And also you're going to be the bad guy because you are in the position of power. Yeah. Spite never looks good on anybody, does it? No, it really doesn't. Um, Okay. So you, you're doing this really cool stuff. um, And, you know, one of the things that Shay and I, you know, and I don't, I don't know if I knew this, like when I first reached out to you, I just knew, Mm -hmm. oh, Kristen would be really smart and a really interesting person to talk to. Um, but you have your own podcast. You have the art of live ops and, you know, mm-hmm. Che and I were kind of talking about, oh my gosh, some of your guests were really cool. And A, like, are we going to get another season? Cause I think season two ended last year. So it's like, is there more to come? Like that's the, you know, I, I guess that if, if I'm breaking some sort of um, rule asking that, you know, do you have some big launch coming? Like, you know, we can, you can be coy, but um and then I guess the second question is, is like, how are you able to leverage some of this stuff to like, kind of like build a community and, and, you know, kind of, you know, kind of use it as a live ops experiment. It's not a game, but you know, it's a, it's an audience builder and, and, and potentially a community builder. Yeah. So I, we, we do plan to do a season three. I'll say that first. Um, you know what? Hey. It's been a really weird year. <laughs> So weird. I, you know, I like all I can really say is it's been a really weird year, and it's been, um, it, it maybe has not risen up to the priority level that it should. But uh, there's so much support, like, I, and there's still like this long list of guests we want to have on. So we will get we will get back out there, um, hopefully really soon. But um, but it has just been a wild year. Um, so wild. I know. Uh, and so, but, but yeah, like, I think you're, you're hitting on like one of the reasons we wanted to do it. Um, you know, when it was James's idea, James Gerson, he's my co-host and also the, uh, was the founder of Playfab, um, or one of the founders of Playfab. Um, he, um, he really was like, there are so, I have all these great conversations with people at conferences. And there's so much knowledge out there, but it's really spread out. Like nobody is really capturing it. Let's, you know, let's, let's do a podcast. And then when we started doing it, we had like lots of ideas about what we would do with it. Like, I think originally we're like, it'll be more like educational. But then when we actually sat down and talked to people, 
it really was a community exercise. It was just like, hey, like, tell us your story. Like, tell us about what you what you're thinking about the industry. Tell us your experiences. Tell us some kind of disaster that you've, um, you know, been involved in, which is always fun. And it became a lot more about creating a sense of community amongst people who do live ops. Like I'm trying to make this group of people feel like you're not alone. There's other people in the industry that do this work. They care about this work. They think about this work. Also is one of the things that led to the live ops disaster stories is it's really hard and everyone screws it up. Like even if you're Rich Vogel, like even if you're Raph Coster, like you make mistakes. That's that happens. Um, and everybody's been through it. Because so much of live ops is you touched on it earlier about, you know, um, being a reporter. It keeps going. And you got to learn that skill of like, ev- you're going to make mistakes, you're not gonna be perfect. It's really about trying again. And that builds the trust too, right with players of like, hey, we're gonna keep at it. When we make a mistake, we're going to say, oops, made a mistake. Like, we're sorry, we're human, but we're not going to disappear. We're not going to go hide because we made a mistake. We're going to go out and do it again. So I think just we wanted to bring a lot of that to a community that's been really fragmented um, in the industry for a long time. Like, it's it's not a community that I think often feels connected. Like, even at GDC, like the things they've done, like, oh, well, now there's like a analytics summit and a mobile summit. And we're like, yeah, but like, those are just like pieces of what people do in the live ops space. So we wanted to at least like make people feel like it was a community. Do you feel like there's still a little bit of a um, lack of understanding of what live ops really is? Because it, it does kind of, it's a little bit tentacly, right? It doesn't just do one thing. And mm-hmm. as you said, like some companies are really good about recognizing like, Hey, this is like really our sales and marketing tools set. Some mm-hmm. aren't. Um, you know, wh- how do you? I mean, I have two questions, but I mean, the first one, the most important one, is like, can you describe what what you consider live ops? You you gave like kind of a nice, like really tight definition, but can you give me mm-hmm. the the longer one as well? I think live ops is a an all up game development philosophy. Like, it's not a discipline. It's basically a way of thinking about making games. And it's, it's, it's basically just a way of thinking about making games that assumes that what you're doing is making something that's going to last a long time and that you're going to have to tend to it and you're going to have to take care of it. Um, and hopefully you're going to grow it. Um, and so it kind of extends all the way back. Like it starts at con- like concept um, of a, of a title. Like it starts with you asking questions like, what what is the retention design for this game? Like what is the like why what is the progression model? Like why would people why would anyone want to continue engaging with this game over and over again? And then it rolls all the way through into well past launch where you're asking like how do we make this, you know, great for new players and elder players at the same time? Like how do we make sure the community has lots of great uh tools and you know, we highlight people like you said who are doing wonderful things out in the community. So the community feels heard. Like, how do we celebrate ourselves? Like, and there's a ton of stuff in between. Um, I think that that is what makes it challenging is that it's not a discipline and you can't just be like, what, like I sometimes laugh with my boss is like, my title is sort of 
like meaningless and like like I it's not like I'm the director of what like a way of thinking like it's not like it's not like there's like a discipline of people who are like oh yeah we're the live ops team right. that we do live ops right. um like everyone touches it I mean I, I know I'm a big believer in it because I've just I've seen a like you know back to Kerbal I've seen when you don't have like a real live ops thing how hard it is for the developers I remember them trying to get you know and they were a small team with a passionate community that really kind of loved them you know other you know, there was a small subset that was like oh you didn't make this thing and we're gonna hold your feet to the fire for it because that's what we thought this game would be there was like a sect of Kerbal fans that were like well, this is what Kerbal should be right and. Sure. We believe in this this future for Kerbal, but this wasn't what the developer was going to do. But if they had live ops and they were literally like live, like operating the game in a live system, they would have been a lot. It would have been a lot more fluid to to say we're not doing it, we're not going down that road. We know we said we would. I remember having to have those conversations with players and how hard it is, right? And that it's yeah. really intimidating for the developers. Um, whereas if you believe in live operations, and I do because I've seen it work time and time again, I, you know, like. I just read yesterday, I mean, and I, you know, I work with Teamy, the developers, but I don't work on Call of Duty Mobile. Um, you know, I, I, I work with them at times, but uh, Activision wrote a, a piece yesterday. I think it went out yesterday or maybe two days ago about they're changing all the guns in Call of Duty Mobile. And, you know, yep. they've been digging through the player data and, you know, it's on Gama Sutra. You can read it. This is public. And it's like, that can't happen in a real way if you're not watching the game day to day. Yeah. It's so true. And if you don't have any kind of pipeline that helps you do it, like this is one of the biggest struggles I think for developers, especially early on we go like, okay, when you're actually developing your gameplay code architecture, are you going to be able to change stuff? Because nothing is set in stone and it's a big shift from waterfall. Waterfall says, like, well, I'm talking about pr production methodology. Waterfall says reduce risk, lock code, right? Like, get, things need to be done. And this is the point where they're done. We're now at alpha. Features are done. We're now at beta. Like, there's no more iteration. And LiveOps says, like, it, it's never done. You need to be ready to, like, overhaul all the guns. Like, that you just need to be ready to do it. Yeah. And I think that players are now expected. I was like, I was listening to the Giant Bombcast like yesterday. And this is like, if you're familiar with the Giant Bombcast, like th this is like, you know, like old school um, games journalism. People who've been playing and writing about games for decades. They were talking about a game and they were saying, you know, I mean... What they really need to do is just look at a lot of the player data and like, you know, go in there and iterate on this because that's what it takes to make a game like this great. And I was like, like, it made me so happy. I was like, this is, I feel like 10 years ago, you would never hear that um, from players. They would be like, I don't know. I don't get it. Or like, uh, I mean, maybe not the giant bomb crews are a lot more sophisticated to understand, you know, game development, but like players wouldn't, would not understand this and it's changed so much i mean uh, yes uh, you know and i think about my you know when we worked together next on how hard it was to have conversations about updates and events and you know then you get to you know when i worked on league of legends 
you know, we had two big things we that, you know, that I can talk about because it's all public and, but they tried to change how you queued for rank. And it mm-hmm. was so awful because we were trying to show this data and the players are like, we don't care about your data. And ultimately we just said, we were wrong. We're going to go back to the old way. Uh, my bad. But it took yeah. months of pain and misery and like walking into the office every day going, what, you know, what, what's going to happen today? You know? And then I think on the other side, I spent time managing people who worked with the live um, like gameplay team. So mm-hmm. they were the ones who were like really examining the health of each champion. So, right. you know, for those of you who don't play League of Legends, um, now I think there's like over 140 champions. I think at the time there was between 120, 130. So um, it's an incredibly complex roster and they are constantly um, updating the champions every two weeks to maintain a certain um, competitive integrity to the game. So players become incredibly attached to champions and then you nerf them which, you know, I think everyone that's listening would know, but just in case, nerfing means make them less powerful. Um, while maybe buffing a champion you don't like to play. And it was just like, it was a, a lot of information and a lot of conversation and developers had to get really good at understanding how to get out in front of that message, knowing, you know, oh gosh, this is like a big high play champion and we're going to make these changes. We need to explain to you why. Yeah. And sometimes you need to bucket that stuff in with other changes in order to, you know, it, you know, it's a renegotiation of a of a player contract to some extent. Like sometimes you got to give a little when you need to get a little. Two things stand out to me about that though. Like something that I said a lot when I was at ArenaNet working on Guild Wars 2 because I worked with a lot of people um who hadn't really been exposed to working on a live game before. And they would get really upset about some of the the forum comments, especially when I was working on with the commerce team, which made like all the stuff to sell in the game. Um, I would say one of the services we provide is a safe thing to be angry about. So, yes, don't let it get out of control in there. You need to get out in front of stuff, explain yourself, blah, blah. But don't get caught up in trying to stop players from being upset. Because that's actually one of the things that you do when you make a live game is it's something safe for players to be angry about. And it balances through the most true of this, right? Like, I think of it for most players, there could be exceptions, but for most players, it's kind of like complaining about your, your sports team not winning. It's not really, yes, you'd like them to win. That would make you happier. Um, but there's something kind of fun too about complaining when they lose and like that's a part of the community as well. Um, and I think it's very similar with live games. Like, yeah, like this is something you can go on the internet and argue about. A lot of times players that are on forums writing, you know, like long speeches about why nerfing their favorite character was wrong. They're the most engaged players. Like they're very, very engaged. They, they care really deeply. So the one thing is, I don't think you want to get too caught up in like, don't try to control the conversation, right? Like you can't make people not happy or make people happy who are not happy. The other thing though is 
and, and it's super important, I think, to remember this in, in live ops all the time is that data by itself just isn't predictive. Like, it's really annoying, but like it's but it's true and it doesn't stop being true. You can go analyze data and come up with predictions and they might have various amounts of, you know, accuracy. Um, but to just looking at data like doesn't tell you anything like you can be like this, you know, your change like the, uh, look at all this data like the, the way you're queuing is terrible and people are like, well, that doesn't matter. Like, and you, and it's really hard to know that. Like, it's because you're like, well, all I have is the data and whatever you guys are offering up to me, you know, unprompted as qua- like quantitative, like qualitative feedback. Sometimes you're going to have to throw it out there and have people go, whoa, actually, we hate that. And you're like, oh, I like, we didn't know you were going to hate this. Like, we, we really didn't. Like, we, we've only got, we're not mind readers. Um, and it can be really hard to get people to tell you they're going to hate something that they haven't actually seen yet or like that they can predict how they're going to feel about it. So it's funny because sometimes live ops sort of gets defined as like, well, you look at all, you, you get a ton of data and then like you make all these decisions based off of it. And it's like, oh, not really. I mean, you get a kind of ton of data and it's really valuable. And, you know, I'm a big fan of, of KPIs and like deciding what you want your goals to be and then dry, and iterating towards those goals. I think it's a very effective development strategy. But I, I sometimes think developers think there's something magic going to happen out of the telemetry. And it's like, nah, not really. Like, it's just going to tell you stuff that's hard for you to see without looking at the numbers. Oh, yeah. I mean... As a avid fantasy sports player, I think it's like a really like direct example of that. Like if I make a trade for a player, I can't just look at the number that they're sitting on today. I have to think, can they maintain it? Can they go up? Will they go down? You know, and like, I, you know, I mean, I'm literally thinking of a trade I made this year that ended up being like a bunch of people told me that was a terrible trade. And I was like, no, I think right. this guy's going to go up. He didn't. Yeah. He went down, right? So now I'm getting, yeah. you know, a ton of trash talk thrown my way because I gave up a really good player who either well, maintained or stayed, right? And it's the same way. There's emotion there. Yes. Yeah. There's also emotion. Yeah. Right? Like that player is a human being. Like they're not they're not stats. Like they're they're not an RPG, you yeah. know, NPC. Right? Like there's matchups, there's how they feel, yep. like how confident they are. Injuries. Like all of those things. Yes. And players are the same way. Like you could look at players and be like you what you clearly hate this thing like i can see the way you're interacting with it is bad right and you'll be like they might be like well i mean i can't explain to you why but i like that thing like i feel comfortable with it or it's it's comforting or um i i think the other way is going to be worse and i'm not willing to make the shift like there's just a lot going on uh, humans are complicated this is this is the the hot take i've got here humans are complicated and they um, they can't really be broken down into stats um, easily, um, and sometimes that makes developers, I think, got to throw up their hands too. Like, well, I, well, if the numbers aren't going to give me the answers, then like, why am I collecting all this telemetry? Well, and it's, I mean, for me, I look at data mm-hmm. as can it can it like verify a thought? Um, mm-hmm. I think the other thing that you brought up, which is you know why, and I know riots kind of changed their perspective a little bit on this because they needed to. But one of the reasons why Riot prided itself so much on like, hey, we hire League of Legends players is because they understand this, right? Um, they mm-hmm. understand that the data is only going to give them a piece of right. what they need to make good decisions. 
having that like internal understanding of what it means to be a diamond level League of Legends player. I never knew that because I was really bad at it, but they have people on their team that that's a big chunk of what they have to be thinking through is like, my experience as a diamond player means X. Does this apply to, you know, the percentage, a wide enough percentage of diamond level players in league? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to your point, which is, you know, you've got to take into the fact that the data is one piece, the humanity is another, um, and then there's the trajectory, like which way it's going to go. And then you're just making your best, you know, you're making an educated guess, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. And then in live ops, what I'm learning today is it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, because you're going to get a chance to kind of re, re I guess you're going to get another shot out of your bow and arrow, right? Like the, yeah. the quiver's endless, essentially, until the game's gone. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think um, it, it makes me think a little bit too about like some of the things you say when you're doing like economy design or um, sort of systems, some systems balance design. Um, you have to design for the average and you have to design for the individual. If you only design for one, you're going to run into some huge problems, right? Like, you can make a system that looks amazing in aggregate. But if the individual player experience is bad, I mean, this is like the trap of probability, right? Like we could go back to talking about loot boxes, right? Like, yeah, you can make a loot box like great distribution. It doesn't matter if the, if one person gets, you know, rolls a one every time, right? Like because it, and that can happen. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. You have to be able to deal with that happening. Like you, you can't, um, I mean, you know, you can make it to you really make everything super random or make everything just work in a big aggregate, but you're going to you're going to lose a lot of people that way. OK, so I want to bring up a few things as we get kind of towards the end of this amazing conversation. Um, you're doing a masterclass for pocketgamer.biz. Um, yes. Would you know, love to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, obviously, it's a publication that I work with all the time. They do a lot of cool stuff. Uh, in terms of events and, and obviously their editorial side, what 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 will people learn from your masterclass? So I'm going to be doing it's it's called like live ops in general, and so I, it's going to be broken down into specifically talking about sort of getting either a game ready to go um, for live ops, or if you have something that's you know really early on, it would probably be very useful. So we're going to talk about um, retention design, like um, you know what exactly. Is it that drives people to stay in your game, come back to the game? And like, how is that, um, how to make sure that that's healthy? Like just a lot of like um, sort of practical tips on examining your own design, evaluating it, you know, seeing where you need to, to make changes there. Um, I'm also going to talk a little bit about monetization. I'm going to talk uh, in a little bit more depth about like setting up uh, monetization pillars and ethical guidelines to sort of help you with that trust building. Um, and then we're going to talk about live content and get a little bit more production-y with it. You know, a little bit more, um, yeah, I, I see a lot of developers struggle a little bit with understanding how to make efficient live content. Um, and that can be really tough because, you know, you can have the greatest idea in the world. Like, I, you know, I joke about this because I, I sometimes get to hear pitches now from developers. And every once in a while you get one that's like, we're going to make... It's going to be like Red Dead Redemption 2 level detail 
this giant world and we're going to update it every week with new content. And it just makes you go like, no one has the resources for that, right? In the whole world. Maybe Rockstar. I don't know. I don't think they're updating that frequently uh, or anything close to that. Not weekly. Um, no way. No way. Right. So it's, it's, that's a really like extreme example, but like just digging into, okay, well, how do you evaluate? Like, you know, how do I make a sustainable live content plan? Like, how do I balance out, you know, novelty versus um, progression design and things like that? So, so it's going to be like, you know, the master classes are great. Um, like, and the, the focus of them is supposed to be like, when we're really actually going to dig down and do exercises together and like get, get kind of deep into practical instead of just sort of, you know, I, I've done um, speaking, love Paco Gamer to Biz. Like they're such a great organization. And I think they always do really substantive content. Um, I've done talks at some of their shows before and they're also very focused, but this is just an opportunity to be like, no, but let's like really dig in and do um, some practical learning. That's rad. That uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. And when it, do you have a date for that? Yeah, it's going to be now that I, you said it, I'm going to like double, double check so that I don't mess it up. Yes, it is June 10th. Nice. Okay. Okay. So I have a couple questions, much like your disaster question. I have a couple that I like to ask. So the first one's kind of esoteric, but uh, I'm, and I'm working on asking it better. But I always think about how much better of a journalist I would have been with a little bit of my knowledge today, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially like working in the complex organizations that are video game development studios and video game publishers. Um, what do you wish you knew about the game industry like earlier in your career? Hmm. That's a great question. So much stuff. I like, I wish that I knew what I know now about like how important the player experience is and how important like community and stuff is. Like, I wish, I think a lot of young designers feel this way too. Is like, I wish I'd been less focused on me and like more focused on players and like more focused on what players wanted and, and um, less sort of in love with the, um, the mechanics of making video games and, and a little bit more willing to get engaged with the outcome. Um, I think that's been like a long journey of my career is becoming more and more focused on <laughs> what comes out the other end as opposed to, Oh, how fun it is to, you know, sit down and Excel and like, you know, make plans and like make designs. I think that's a great answer. Um, and it, I think it's, it also speaks to me a little bit as someone that's like been in journalism and PR where you really got to think about your audience, right? Like it went, and, and it's so easy to say, Oh yeah, I think about my audience, but then you don't do it. And then you wonder why something didn't go the way you wanted it to. <laughs> right. You know, and it's like, well, because you're navel gazing, you're too busy thinking about, you know, what your boss is going to say or what your peers are going to think and not like, what is that player that's going to step foot into this experience and go, okay, I like this because, or I didn't. Yeah. Um, okay. What these, these are really easy ones, but I like to ask them. The first is like, are you playing anything right now? Is there some, is there a game that stands out that, you know, you, you're comfortable giving a plug for? Um, um so I'll be, this will be funny. Um, I'm really, I just downloaded uh, Resident Evil Village. I'm super excited about playing that game. I loved Seven. It was sort of like a big return for me to, for Resident Evil. Um, 
So I've got that queued up, which is great. But I'll give you my, my shame answer, which is like, I have just spent the last like, like three weeks just playing Skyrim again. Like I play, like, seriously, when, when the ZeniMax acquisition finished and like all of the Elder Scrolls games got onto Game Pass, I was like, yes, this is the perfect time for me to go play a, no, this 10 year old game again. Um, I should, so that's really like my comfort food for sure for the last like, couple of weeks is i'm like i'm just playing skyrim again uh i mean it makes sense though i know you know i i i remember having a lot of conversations about your you're very much an mmo uh rpg native um so it totally makes sense to me that skyrim would be um a game that you're kind of reintroducing yourself to yeah um okay now this is a really important for the community feedback loop because we like to think about communities and, and talk about them so um, what's a fascinating community and it can't be one you're working with or on that yeah. is drawing your attention. Um, I'm super fascinated by Dwarf Fortress. Um, Dwarf Fortress has a really interesting, deep narrative community where people construct narratives based on, if people don't, do people, people know if Dwarf Fortress is right. It's like a procedurally based game um like a really really deep systemic uh procedural game um with like deep simulation elements that has like no graphics it's just like ascii art yeah um it's like a fever dream from like 1985 yes it's it's a very dense game that's like difficult to crack um but the community around it is is incredible. Like they, there's all these people who construct really like elaborate narratives and like write them into stories based on the things that happen in their simulated worlds um, that you only have like so much direct control over. So it's sort of just emerging. Um, it's like a diff, totally different take. I'm super fascinated by um, AI assisted writing. Like I I love AI assisted creation, um, and it's not quite that. But it's like in that vein of like people are like, I'm just going to let this simulation run and then I'm going to write a story based on whatever happens inside of that simulation. I think that community is super fascinating. It's this weird intersection of people who are like, I'm super into this really dense, sort of difficult to get into game and I'm a creative writer. And these are the things that I'm bringing together. Dwarf Fortress was something we talked a lot about during my KSP times. And I am super impressed that you are going down that rabbit hole because I'm one of the people that was like, what is happening? How do I, I didn't even know where to input myself. So oh, I think it just. my re- Yeah. My relationship with Dwarf Fortress is very similar to my relationship like Eve Online, which is to say like, oh, I don't really want to play it. <laughs> I I just want to engage with the community around it. Um, this is no dig on Eve. Eve is fantastic. It's uh, just dangerous. And like, I would, like, I just, who knows I just buy Andrew Groan's books. The, yeah, you know. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, it's like watch like weird, you know, news channels oh. about Eve online, uh, community, like oh, corporations. Yes. That stuff is amazingly cool. Like, I think that those communities are so interesting and I think testament to some of the stuff we talked about, like, I can sit here and be like, I'm not, I'm not an Eve online player. Like I don't play Eve, but I'm still engaging with Eve. Yeah. I mean, and the same with Dora Fortress. Like I've poked around with it a little bit, but I, I don't 
I'm like, I don't know if I'm smart enough for this game. Um, well, you're definitely smart enough. I just, I wonder if it's just what you'd want. It's yeah, but the 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 community around creating narratives from Dwarf Fortress is just fascinating. Um, it's just it's so interesting. Oh man, well, I mean, I think that just is a great place to kind of like conclude the podcast because it again, it's just like. For me, you bringing into our forces of the conversation, like I think shows your depth of knowledge around community, your depth of knowledge around live ops. Although I guess Dwarf Fortress technically probably isn't a live operations game, um, but the communities Sorry. probably make it one. Um, mm-hmm. But thank you, Kristen. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. All right. Well, Thank you so much for listening to the Community Feedback Loop Podcasts. You can support the show by subscribing to Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. We'll catch you next week.